Thanks for tuning in to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Today, I'm excited to share my chat with RJ Andrews about his recently published book, his creative process, and what a wristwatch can teach us about telling stories with data. All this and more coming up next. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am very excited to be sitting here in San Francisco in RJ Andrews' kitchen. It is sort of a blustery, cold day in San Francisco. And actually, I want to kick us off with an anecdote of another day in San Francisco. I think it was probably actually about a year ago. It was a sunny day that time, and I was out for a run. And who do I run into but Mr. R.J. Andrews? And he was also running. And so we joined up and did a little jog together. And R.J., I think you were maybe about halfway through the book at that point. Does that sound roughly right? It's it's hard to make these sort of judgments about what, what, what is halfway, what, what is done, is is it ever really done? Sure, that's fair. I do remember you were talking about you had a, a pretty aggressive daily word count goal that you were trying to hit at that point. And we'll definitely talk more about your process for writing the book as we get a little bit further into things. But I remember, one, talking about the book, which was uh, super interesting for me when things were sort of forming ideas, but not sort of fully baked yet and conversations around that. I also remember that because you ran with me all the way up Potrero Hill, uh, which was a very nice, friendly thing to do because your path home did not need to go up this massive hill. And so that was a very nice thing. I'm curious, though. Running, uh, is this still part of your regular routine? I think there's one point in the book where you talk about this being your marinating empty time. Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, so physical activity is really useful to creativity because your your brain is sort of involved doing this almost monotonous activity and it kind of frees you up to wander. Very similar to when you're underwater in a hot shower and your brain can kind of just wander. I feel like that there are certain physical activities, usually endurance athlete kind of sports mm -hmm. where I can, my, my, my brain kind of goes to a similar place. And so I ran a lot while I was making the book. Now that we're post-publication, I've been able to add back some other calisthenic, you know, kind of activities. So I'm back to paddling on my kayak. I'm back to swimming laps in the pool down the street. And uh, the reason why those activities stopped while making the book is because they both have some startup costs mm -hmm. and that like when you go swimming, oh, you got to go shower and you got to get in the pool. And it's like it's uh, a little bit more of a, of a time commitment. yeah time commitment. It's not just a time commitment. It's like psychologically a little bit. There's a couple more barriers. Yeah. To it. Well, you have to physically go somewhere where there's yeah. a pool. Yeah. yeah where it's like that. with running, it's just like oh, throwing your shoes and like the moment you step out the door, you're doing it. Yep. And so it just seems like the most easily accessible activity. Yeah. That's interesting. Let's back up even further, though. Uh, I know you are big into origin stories from a number of the conversations that you and I have had over the years. And I would love for you to share um, your origin story, you know, backing up, thinking back to childhood. Uh, you've talked about your dad is an architect and that projects with him growing up were maybe some of the foundational things that set you on the path to where you are today. 
So curious in what that path looked like. Uh, I grew up in a, in a wonderful household. I really do believe that I hit the parent lottery. Uh, my father is a architect. My mother's a speech pathologist with a really uh, heavy interest in dramatic arts in the, in the theater. My baby sister, Elizabeth, is a professional photographer. And what's true across the theater, architecture, photography, is, and, and even speech pathology, is that these are all arts, they're all practices that have very technical aspects. Like you have to do math and understand machines or anatomy in all of those different disciplines, but they're also very human disciplines. They are arts. They are disciplines that heavily rely on people's perception, mm -hmm. whether you're designing a building and how do people feel when they move through it, whether you're designing a show and how does the audience feel, whether you're showing a, a photograph. And so growing up in a household, uh, you can imagine a beautiful old house sort of in the middle of nowhere, um, which gives lots of downtime, mm -hmm. you know, boring time, honestly, to, to look through all the giant coffee table books that your parents accumulated. And then particularly my father, who was an architect, really showed me and then worked with me how to build anything from anything. And so kind of like whatever... What sort of things did you build? So you can think of a lot of school projects. One of my favorites was the only science fair competition that I, uh, I ever entered. I was in seventh grade and I had this vision for showing what the Orion constellation was like. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have to visualize this with me, but imagine a very large box, the size of a kitchen table. It's maybe three or four feet high. And this box is covered in black plastic all the way around with a pinhole viewing at, at the long end of it. And you look through the pinhole and you see the constellation of Orion. And it's just the, the simple, I don't know, seven, eight stars, however many stars are in Orion. And they're in their right order. You can recognize it, you know, as, as the great hunter in the sky. You know, it's just a simple glow-in-the-dark stars. Then what I would do is after you looked in the pinhole and saw Orion, I would take you to the side of the box, the long end of the box. And I would open up a big flap and I'd show you where the stars were. And the stars were po positioned on black dowels to get them at the right vertical height. Okay. And then they were at the right distance from the pinhole relative to their distance from earth. Oh my goodness. So what I showed you- A little more math went into that than it first met the eye, huh? Yeah, so what I, what I showed you is like our perception of these stars is that they're in all- Sort of flat. Yeah, right? they're yeah. like it's a, a picture, but then by going to the side, I was able to show, but that's not actually how it is. They exist in three-dimensional space and it's only our particular vantage that puts them in this order. And so that's maybe the first real sort of visual information yep. project that, uh, that I ever attempted. And to be clear, Obviously, as a seventh grader, you have no idea what data visualization is or even infographics. But looking back, I can now see these sort of uh, breadcrumbs. Yeah. Okay. So from the seventh grade science fair, where do you go from there? So the other, you know, kind of key milestone in my childhood is I went to England, I think after eighth grade. So this is maybe, you know, a year and a half, two years after the science fair. And I went to Queen Victoria's summer house on the Isle of Wight and I came down the stairs and I saw what I think is really the first statistical chart 
that arrested my attention. Okay. That grabbed me and made me stop and like, oh, that's really interesting. And what it was, was a chart of the different British monarchs. Okay. And it was a chart created for her, I believe, Diamond Jubilee. So this is maybe late 19th century. So maybe 1880, something around there. And each ruler was represented by a column. And the longer their reign, the taller the column. Okay. And the column's decoration was depicted in a way that reflected something about their reign. And so if the ruler was executed, for example, there was a black shroud oh, over the column. <laughs> and for Queen Victoria's reign, which they were which the chart was celebrating, it was just the most elaborately decorated, sure. most beautifully colored yeah. column. And I bought I bought a poster of this chart. I remember just staring at it. And um, this is sort of another important breadcrumb on the trail. If we fast forward from there, I can talk a little bit about, I came out of this very multidisciplinary household and decided to go a little bit more quantitative than everybody else in my family and went to engineering school. I went to engineering school because I thought that, you know, the world's problems were technical and you need an engineering mindset to kind of solve technical problems. And so I got a couple degrees in engineering and then I went to work as an engineer. And what I found was, oh, maybe the world's problems aren't technical. Maybe the world's problems are actually people problems. And if you work as a pure engineer, what I found is that you're sort of constrained to only working on technical problems and you're sort of given a, 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 a set of specs and you design a solution to the specs and you don't ever or you often don't get a full picture on what's really going on. Was it the creative piece that was missing or? Well, you're able to be very creative from a technical perspective, but you aren't able to be creative from a defining the problem. Yeah. So the design piece, which is the design okay. piece. Okay. Yeah. And um, and so I left pure engineering work and I went to MBA school and I went to MBA school to really study people and to understand people problems. And it was a, a phenomenally rich environment to do that. And th that's where I really made the hard commitment to visual information. That's where I, I actively chose that this is what I'm interested in and this is what I when want to pursue. When you were getting pursue. your MBA? Yeah, during MBA school. And okay. it was a, I took a, a class at the MIT Media Lab. And during that class, I was exposed to enough of the digital world that I was really enthused and excited to pursue the digital world. And what sort of what sort of classes or were there classes on data visualization at that point that you had access to that you took advantage of or were there other courses that stood out as helping hone that early interest? Uh, there were not. I think that what helped hone that interest was a broad exposure to excitement about the so as an engineer I worked in the in the world of Adams as a mechanical engineer. I worked on I worked on a Ferrari, I worked on the space shuttle, I worked on a destroyer. I mean I worked on very, very exciting, physical, real things. And it, there's almost nothing more exciting than designing something on a computer at a CAD station and seeing it very quickly be manufactured and become a real thing yeah. and go work and actually be be in the world as a thing that produces value. That is a extraordinarily exciting experience. And gratifying, I imagine, right? That you see the results of your efforts in yes. this really physical, tangible yeah, form. It's, it's something that's in your head that doesn't just go on a screen and be displayed to people. It's something in your head that now sits on a table or is on the road or is floating in the sea or is flying in space. Yeah. 
that's pretty cool. How, how has that shift been then? Because that is uh, different, let's say, than when you are working in the world of data, right? You create something, but it's not, it's not tangible in the same way. It's not tangible. And in some sense, what I'm always chasing is the same personal gratification and the same impact that a tangible thing can have, you know, via a, a visual thing, uh, a, a digital product. And the digital products, I think people who only work in the digital products don't see how truly limited digital is. So digital can provide you incredible interactivity. It gives you access to maybe tens of millions of little, little points, but the resolution isn't very good. The screen size isn't very good. Good luck getting something to work the same in Chrome as Firefox. <laughs> um, there's a lot of constraints that if you want to do anything really creative in the digital world, that isn't exactly how the digital world is designed for, that you're suddenly like working extra, extra, extra hard. And so I see those constraints and those constraints still sort of fascinate me mm -hmm. and you know haven't haven't turned off my enthusiasm for it but i i do experience them and do you still make physical things as well i still make physical things but usually not not for publication not for clients i make physical things for my friends for myself and there's this whole field called nicknamed uh, fizzviz which is physical visualization okay and i think across the last year it was probably um amy's play-doh uh, yeah, project yeah so this is Amy Cecil's experiments, which won her uh, Cantor Information is Beautiful Award. And she's been doing this extraordinary series of all kinds of statistical and statistical depictions of different, all kinds of different data using Plato. And if you talk to her, you will understand how hard it is, yeah. how time consuming it is, um, but also like how extraordinarily rewarding it is. And so FizzViz is something that I have a very sort of active interest in and something that I am uh, in the background studying mm -hmm. and collecting ideas for. I think what's important about physical visualization is that good physical visualization is not just a printout poster yep. of what you could see on the screen. It's something that takes unique advantage of, of three-dimensional space. Right, that you can't, yeah, 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 that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I am interested in talking more about what you're building, but let's let's actually talk about something else where there is a physical artifact now, and that is the book. Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data, your first book, came out just a few weeks ago. So I want to talk about this. I, I'm actually very excited about it. I recently finished reading it myself, and I found it, such an exciting adventure that you took me on as I was reading it. And so thank you for that. I want to step back first and talk about um, sort of still on your path, but what made you decide to write a book in the first place? And what made you decide to write this book specifically? So there are many inputs to why somebody might go chase a book. I think on one side, there's uh, a market opportunity for a particular type of book. That market opportunity was that I saw a big gap, a big gulf. And I didn't see this, honestly, my editor saw this, bet between the best data storytelling work that was being done in the wild, published by you know all of our colleagues, and what was available via a book that could teach you how to do this. And so there are plenty of extraordinary, you know, intro to data visualization books, including yours, very successful books, 
But then after you read that book, you know, where do you go next? So that was the market side input. Personal input is that I'm a bibliomaniac. I love books. I love physical books and the opportunity, and this is sort of where the two come together, the opportunity for me to work on this book was a really um, extraordinary opportunity because the publisher gave me complete creative control. And so when I say complete creative control, I mean, I did the cover, I designed it, I hand illustrated everything, um, I chose the paper. I mean, this is a very, very you know, special chance that I, that I received and I wasn't going to let, let it slide by. I also knew that it was going to be really, really hard to make a book. And I'm always across, if you look across my history of projects, they're always sort of a little bit different. They appear different and it's, and, and they're made with different tools and they're always trying to do a different thing and maybe serve. You must like this challenge, right? I, I like the challenge because I, I find that that's where you learn a lot. Yep. You learn a lot, um, you know, personally, but you also learn a lot about what's the goal. The goal is to become a better data storyteller and to advance the craft generally of data storytelling. And so that's where I found I've been able to do that. And you referred to yourself as a bibliomaniac, uh, or that may have been it. Um, how many books did you read in over the course of creating this book? So I read, I read a lot. And another reason to write the book is that it gave me the opportunity to assemble a library around the book and then, and then tear through that library. And so Maybe I forget how many are, are in the bibliography, but maybe a couple hundred books. Yeah, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, it's a lot. But, you know, when you read um, with a lot of purpose, you know, I, I call it almost like extractive reading, mm -hmm. you know, where in some cases you approach a book and you read the index, you circle everything in the index that you 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 need to read and then you write out all those page numbers in order. You only read those pages. I mean, obviously didn't read all the books like that, but, yeah. you know, there's some days it's like, I only have three hours with this book and I need to rip something out of it. You know, I know that there's something in here that's worthwhile and that's going to be useful to my book. And so let's go get it. And so as you're doing that, you can cover a lot of ground. Of course, you have to be really careful of a sort of a maybe confirmation bias sure. because you're, you're seeking, you have a certain expectation of this is what this book can do for me. Yeah. And so you try to bake in time and, and just awareness um, to be surprised and to learn because uh, obviously if you're... Looking... And to question the preconceptions that you had going in, right? Refute them when you need to. Yes. Let's get more specific about what the book is for folks who may not be familiar, may not have gotten their copy yet. Uh, they should add it to their Amazon cart now. But early on in the book, you say storytelling icing is delicious, but only if you are frosting on the finest cake. Yes, you spent a good amount of time early on in the book talking about the origins, uh, the origins of data, uh, how we look at it, why we look at it that way, right? Things that happened in history that make it so that we see bars as a stack and that makes sense and all of these intuitive ways that our minds and our eyes work that go, for me at least, went quite a lot or levels deeper, I think, than we typically get in a book on data visualization that was very interesting. But you move pretty quickly past that and into some more interesting things. So I'm wondering, could you lay out for us the, the general structure of the book, what it's about? Mm. So the structure of the book roughly mirrors my own experience of what it's like to put together a data story. And so maybe about two thirds of the way through the book, I unveil one of the very few frameworks that the book has. 
And the framework is exactly what it's like to make a data story, but it's also the framework that roughly describes the book. And so it's, it's a simple framework. So I think we can maybe paint a picture of it. And the framework starts at the top. It's a cycle. It starts with the world. And we take some sort of measurement from the world, and that's data. And then data you can think of as pure content. And then we put that content in a form. We arrange it. Uh, we put the content information and make it information. And then we take that information and inject it back into the world. And so it's sort of like the world, we measure it into data, and then we get information, we put that information back in the world. Again, very simple, and there's sort of this sub-cycle, which some people refer to as the EDA or exploratory data analysis cycle, where you take the data, you humanize it into information, you learn something, and you're not ready to inform the world yet, but you actually dive right back into the data and you keep probing the data. And so you're sort of straddling the chaos and order of data and information, or you're straddling the content and form, and you're going through these cycles, trying to get better and better and better information. That's the rough that's the rough idea behind the book. And so the first section of the book is going to give you not necessarily a technical, but more of a philosophical and human understanding of the distinction between data and information. It's and then the book continues and it teaches you a little bit about information, what makes good information and not from a technical perspective, but from a human perspective. And what I mean by that is what makes what makes good information for somebody who doesn't have a technical background, who doesn't understand data visualization, because the person you're going to be serving your data stories to will not understand data visualization. And so you want, you need to have a perspective that is broader than just, I am an expert in data visualization. Then the book has a, an interesting sort of interlude or hiccup where before we inject our information into the world, we want to understand how the world is already being informed from a lot of non-data arts. And so most of information doesn't uh, arrive on a statistical platter. And so I look at graphic design and museum design and emotional design and story design and engineering design, all these sort of non-statistical. Those were some of my favorite chapters, by the way. <laughs> They they were the most fun to write yeah. because it really allowed me to go into fields that I obviously love. I'm a always been a museum nerd, and learn about those fields from a perspective and say how does how do these fields relate to our field? Yeah, yeah, and the parallels were amazing, right? When you say, well, I'm not going to make the connections for you, but check out as you walk in a museum all the thought that's been put into that journey, and that we should be thinking about similar things when we are looking at data. So that was some really interesting thought starters and with things to think about without being at all prescriptive in the way that you think about them, uh, which is just a really neat thing. Mm, yeah, and not being not having many frameworks not being prescriptive is that's a lot of my own personality what, what i found reading so many books on data visualization from history is that the ones that are prescriptive are the ones that don't last mm. it's such a complex craft yeah. because there's all kinds of different there's all kinds of different data there's all kinds of different arenas where you're going to be trying to inform people there's all kinds of different people it's just it's it's so hard to say you can never do this or you should always do that right it's it's the critical thinking that goes into making some of these decisions right and backing up and thinking mm. about that okay so from so these were the sensational chapters that you talked about where does it go from there so from sensational then we really focus on informing 
And at this point, we have knowledge about what human information is all about. We have a knowledge about how people like being informed and, and how to inform people from all kinds of different disciplines. And what I do is I have this idea of expansion and then focus. And so you sort of expanded your understanding of a topic or a question or a hypothesis, a data set in a way that you've generated a lot of visual exhaust, a lot of different charts. And then we collect those and make a decision about how do we focus this story to the audience. And so it's no longer about discovering something on your own, but focusing the story to the attention of your audience. And I do that across two chapters with a very specific example. And I develop and, and honestly discover for myself, because I discovered this while I was writing it, I, I had a very interesting hypothesis and a very interesting question, and then was able to develop it visually, show you how I learned about this topic visually and then and then focus it to the audience once I kind of had my own personal aha moment. And the interesting the hinge point is the aha moment for me was very meaningful because I went on the journey to learn it. But if I only showed you the aha moment moment as it arrived to me, it would mean nothing to you because you didn't go on the journey as I did discovering it. And so in order to teach you and and have you arrive at a similar aha moment, I had to convey it in a different way. Yeah, and the 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 example that you talk about was such a beautiful illustration of all of the things that you talked about in the book leading up to that. I think uh, I don't want to reveal what it is, um, but one analogy that you drew at one point that I thought was a really interesting way to think about it is the watch, right? Where the front of the watch it started out simple, you know, a watch is meant to tell time; it should just tell time. But then over time, the watch started being almost sort of a status symbol, right? Where uh, you know we add features and we add uh, ornaments and, and things as, as a status symbol. And so it actually got very hard to tell time and took it even a step further and said, well, let's actually make the back transparent so you can see the workings of the watch. And you liken the front of the watch to you know, how we might inform someone else after we've done our analysis and the back of the watch to all of the inner workings of, you know, what did we do? What data did we look at? All of, all of that stuff. And then you basically just sort of pose the... Um, uh, statement, I guess, to the audience to say, just be clear which side of the watch you're showing to your audience. Because there can be cases for both, but too often, and this is my interpretation, not your words, but too often I think we we show the back of the watch when really we shouldn't be, or that's not what our audience needs at that point. I just thought it was such an interesting way to think about and really objectify uh, in, in a useful way that part of the thought process. Yeah, so watches have complications features, and they're important. Even if they don't have extra features, as the maker, you have to know how to make the watch. You have to understand gears and movement and you know all the inner complexity of how the watch is made. But don't let that outshine the fact that at the end of the day, you're supposed to be telling time right. to, the, to the wearer of the watch. You know, I'm, I'm still an engineer. I'm still enormously curious, invested, and passionate about how to make the gears, how to make the thing actually work. But that's not sufficient. Our, and I, what I've observed is that a lot of our attention as makers can become, because it's so hard, it's so hard to make, make the watch. It's so hard to do data visualization from a technical, like just to get the thing to work. It, it consumes so much of our energy, but it shouldn't consume all of it. 
Well, and I think because it consumes so much of our energy, there's a tendency to want to show all of that to the audience. And we don't want to overconsume their attention with all of that necessarily either. Another way to think about the front of the watch where you tell tell time, the back of the watch where you see all the gears through um, maybe a a, a transparent, you know, crystal backing um, is encoding versus decoding. Yeah. So we really don't care about encoding efficiency. Like what we care about is decoding efficiency. Yes. Another way to think about it is information versus informing. Yeah. Right. And so information, the map, the chart, the diagram, it's, it's important. It's sort of the, the medium from which meaning can flow. But if nobody looks at it, it's just going to gather dust in a file on your desktop or on your shelf. And so it's actually the informing, which is, it's so much more mercurial, it's so much harder to pin down. And I think because it is so hard that that's why it's, it's, it's harder because it's harder to analyze. It's, it's harder for us to talk about. Yes. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. So the watch is one example of this, but you use a ton of metaphors and analogies over the course of the book. Trees, shadows, water, the mind's eye, cathedrals. Can you talk more about, well, I don't know if there's one of these that pique your interest uh, today that you could talk more about of, I think, both the inspiration, right, of how you came to, to think of think of writing in this way, right? And think of um, helping us understand data through some of these metaphors and analogies, and then, and then also how they're integrated in the book and how you approach that. Mm. So we can talk a little bit more about the, the uh, water. So the idea is that data is water. So that's, that's the metaphor. Data is water. Okay, well, what, what exactly do we mean by that? And, and how can it work? Well, it turns out that if, you, if we start there, we can take that metaphor in a lot of different directions. So I'm very superficial way of thinking about it is think of data as content and information as form and water can help illustrate that imagine you have two different vessels one is a vase for flowers and another is a pint glass take the same volume of water put that water in the two different vessels now the content the water has not changed at all but the way the water is shown depicted has changed quite a lot how it will be consumed (laughs) yeah uh yeah who consumes it right because and and it's the same that if you have the same data the same content the data does not change but depending on the chart form that you might choose to display it you know it completely changes how you see the data yeah so that's a very superficial way that data is water is, is helpful but data is water is also helpful not even thinking about information so how do we use data well, we use data to entertain, maybe in data journalism or in infographics. We use data to revive, right? We use data to to keep a business going, right? But And so there's all different ways that water is used. And in the book, I'm going to go and actually look at this because I want to make sure I nail it. Okay, here's here's a live read. So data is like water. With effort, both data and water are captured from the environment, pooled in reservoirs, and delivered to where they are needed. The same water could irrigate a farm, spout from a palace fountain, or mix concrete for a new building. Likewise, we use data to revive, entertain, and build. Data may be a frozen snapshot, like an Antarctic ice core sample, but it may also be a dynamic stream always rushing past. So that's the second way that data is water is useful. But I think there's an even deeper third way that the metaphor data is water is is really powerful. And that is the idea that 
water is very useful, but can also be very scary. And so too much water will drown you. People used to be afraid of sea monsters. A lot of sea monsters turn out to be real. Across all of the world's mythology, there's this idea of evil coming from the water and having to plunge into water. And so what do we do when we hang on and then we go back into it, right? And so it's very much like, uh, like the hero Beowulf, like diving into the water to fight the Grendel monster. And so that's like, Again, it's not only metaphorical, but it's almost a mythical perspective on what it's like to create a data story. I love that. And I love the the vividness of the the images, right, as we think about, which I want to talk about images more. But actually, maybe before we get to images, let's talk about margins. Can you talk to us about how you approached, uh, there actually are very few margins in your book in the the traditional sense, right, of there being blank space, because you filled your margins with many things. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So when you open the book to almost any spread, you're going to see a unified composition. And the composition has three, three parts. One is the central narrative. The central narrative is in black text. You read the central narrative straight through and it is a narrative. It will pull you through. And it's, it's almost like an adventure story that just pulls you through the entire book. You're also going to see a lot of illustrations. So the illustrations are all hand-drawn. There's over 300 illustrations throughout the book, and they are designed in a way to be uh, rough, but not so rough that they're not clean and they distract. So they have this very human emotional quality. Now, the third ingredient, which you're talking about, is the marginalia. And so I refer to this playfully as my menagerie of, mar <laughs> of marginalia. And the margins are directly inspired by this book called The 48 Laws of Power. And what The 48 Laws of Power does is it uses its margins to add this extra dimension to the lessons of the book. And you can dance between the central narrative and the margins and see extra examples, little anecdotes. And, and what the margins allow me to do as an author is keep wonderful little inspiring points of light from hitting the cutting room floor. Because if I had to create the narrative framing to put all these in the central in the central text, then the book would balloon to this enormous proportion that would be completely unmanageable. And honestly, you don't need to have that framing to appreciate all the marginalia. For example, in, um, in the 1880s, there was this French statistician named Lavasseur, and I went and I, and I translated and read one of his talks from the 1880s, and he refers to bar charts as stacks of facts. And that is just like the most wonderful, human, like playful, joyful description I've ever heard of a bar chart. It's a stack of facts, and I need to put that in my book. Now, could I have slid it somehow in the central text. Well, yeah, I could have done that one, but not all 300 pieces of marginalia. And so each of the pieces of marginalia is meant to just you know, like make you smile, make you reconsider. And then also they give you access points. So each piece of marginalia, a lot of them aren't from data visualization at all. They're from science. They're from philosophy. Yeah, it was. They're, I wrote down a couple. They they really ran the gamut, right? You you get from you know Tukey and quotes from EDA. You get uh, Carol Lewis, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, there was a quote from uh, Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. Oh yeah, and yeah. One of the joys is you are able to you know kind of put all your childhood heroes into the book. So Ian Malcolm had to go in there somewhere. 
<laughs> yeah, I think it was interesting for me reading through. I found that with some uh, on some pages, I would read everything in the margins. Other pages, I would skip the margins or read one or two. Mm. And so it's a choose your own adventure, I guess. It, it is a little bit of a choose your own adventure. And it's interesting to hear how people are reading the book. And so what I've learned so far is that people aren't reading all the marginalia on their first read. And but they're reading some of it. And what the marginalia affords is an opportunity to return to the book later on. And get more the next time, right? Get more the next time. That's right. You touched on this, um, but there are over 300 hand-drawn illustrations in the book. Uh, And one thing that people might find interesting that for a book that is focused on data visualization, I'll say, there are there are no graphs made with graphing software. I think behind the scenes there probably were, but even the graphs are hand-drawn. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, why? Creating hand-drawn illustrations was not the original intent, was not my original intent. Creating hand-drawn illustrations is one of the reasons I blew my first deadline, because they added months of work to the process. They were not easy to produce. Um, Talk us through how you how you did it. So most of the activity for creating these illustrations was actually not the hand drawing. The pre-production is planning the drawing. And so that often starts just making very ugly little doodles, some of which are in, in the back matter of the book to give you a, a, a short window into my process. And then the post-production, which is color correction. And so all of the illustrations had to hang together And so they had to be the same shade of blue, the same shade of burnt orange and golden yellow. And so there's a lot of time sunk into the post-production. The hinge activity is actually illustrating them. So when I actually illustrated them, um, I use a big fat marker. I almost always trace the illustration from something I produced either by hand or on my computer. And so when there are charts, I've already created those charts somehow either in Illustrator or in a D3 block or with Tableau. Yeah, there was one particularly uh, impressive spread that it was the same data. It was it was a scatter plot. It was a violin plot. It was a bee swarm where yes. you, you know hundreds of marks <laughs> made with yes. a marker. Yeah, and and making the hand drawn illustration wasn't my original intent. The, originally, I had these perfect vector art illustrations, and one of my friends and and mentors, Nick Susanis saw oh, I think quoted in the book a couple of times. Yeah, a couple of times. So Nick wrote this book called Unflattening and it's his PhD thesis. And it's honestly the most imagination I've ever seen squeezed between two book covers. It is perhaps my favorite book. And it's definitely the book I give most often as a gift to people. So Unflattening was a big inspiration. And then on top of that, Nick is a professor here in San Francisco. And so he was able to advise me and he looked at my vector art and then he asked to see my notebook and my notebook not only has a lot of quotes, but also a lot of doodles. And he looked at my doodles and he said, do that. He's like, do that. It's so much more you. It so much fits with the tone of the book. And I know it's going to be hard. And I know that your inner perfectionist is not going to want to make all these rough little drawings and show that to the world. 
but do that, it's going to be better for it. And so he's the one that convinced me really to pursue pursue these hand drawings. And and thank gosh he did. Yeah, they're they're beautiful. Uh, yes, and and it's interesting because you talk about this in the book as well. You spend a couple of chapters talking about drawing and how drawing or sketching can help uh, as we both explore data, but then as we figure out how to communicate it. And this idea you mentioned this roughness over perfection, right? The perfection can feel dead, whereas the the hand drawn I think really does a nice job of humanizing it. Yeah, the the person to read. Um... So visual thinking is its own field. Dan Rome has a great book called Draw to Win. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that a lot of people, when they think about drawing, think about pictorial representation, depicting something beautifully for presentation. Yep. And that's very different than drawing as a cognitive tool, either on your own or a cognitive tool with others, which is what Dan Rome sort of specialty is. Yep. Another another thing about the, the hand-drawn illustrations is that my my practice as a data storyteller is fairly technologically agnostic, but I the book is very very much technologically agnostic. Yes. It's not about. I don't think is, there's a mention of tools anywhere that I recall. The book is not about how to pull the levers, how to click the buttons, and honestly, because go online to do that. Like yeah. watch watch a YouTube tutorial. Like that's going to help you better. Like by the time the the book's published, any advice on that is going to be outdated. Sure. But I really wanted to focus your attention on the informing of the audience, not really on how to pull the levers. And so the hand-drawn illustrations help reinforce that attention to that focus. Yeah. And how do you think, so stepping back and stepping out of the book, I guess, how does drawing help us be better data storytellers in general? So a couple ways, and I'll frame it from kind of an analytical perspective. Unless you are extraordinarily talented, there's no uh, externally talented with um, with code or with the computer. Um, there is no tighter link between the mind and the outside world than pen and paper. It is so efficient. It is, is honestly, it's it's seamless, and it's very important to externalize ideas because the moment that you externalize an idea, it it a it's no longer taking up space in your working memory, and b it's its own thing. It's not part of you. It's not part of your identity so much anymore. It's something that's out in the real world. You can point to it and say, haha, there it is. And then what, what do you do next? You react to it. And so you have something on the paper and then you can react to it. That's, I think, the first utility, right, from an analytical perspective of, 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 of drawing. But the, the second reason to draw things by hand, especially if you're no good at drawing by hand, is that it gives you another perspective on what you're doing. And so I think one of the recommendations I make in the book is that I'll, I'll sometimes do my analysis and my presentation of a data story in very different media. Mm-hmm. And that's because it, it forces you to sort of like turn over the story and really you know, make some decisions. And so whenever you can get a different lens on something, because when you're working on something, you're going to be so close to it emotionally, intellectually, that it's easy to kind of get lost. And there's this advice for writers that like put your text in a font that's really ugly because it will make you it will make you read every word mm, and, and and give you a different lens it on it is. in the same way that like sometimes it's useful to see things in an ugly format such as a hand-drawn sketch because one of the problems with making stuff with a computer is that it looks so good you know that it's going to look right it's going to look perfect just because get attached of the, to it right just because of the <laughs> Uh, the no, styling, okay. like the styling is perfect, yeah. but that doesn't mean that the core yep. form is perfect. 
Yeah. No, I think I think it, everyone can benefit by picking up pen and paper and using low tech tools more often. Uh, super curious in sharing more about your process for writing. I think one of the things that was fun for me was discovering that at the back of the book, you actually have an essay that has some pictures and uh, some details about your process for writing. But what sort of, and you also actually uh, early on in the book, look at Mozart's uh, routines, as well as a number of other historical figures' routines for their creativity. But curious what your rituals looked like for the process of writing the book. So there's only so many writing days and there's multiple days of work, research, planning, thinking, doodling, preparation before you actually write. And then for every writing day, there's probably a couple of days of editing, maybe more. And so similar to like drawing the illustrations, the actual drawing of the illustration, the actual like initial, I'm going to bang out these words pales in comparison to the effort pre and post. You know, writing's really done in editing. And in the same way that like when you write your first draft, what's important is just to get something on the page so that you can start the real work of reacting to it and polishing it and, and putting it in shape. That said, when I did write, when I did have like, okay, this is my writing day, I had a goal of 2000 words. I had a couple hero days of like 3,500 words, yeah. which for me was a lot. Um, it's it was, right. How often would you have your writing days? Um, Any sort of set frequency or as the mood struck you or? Uh, that's a good question. Many of these things I actually don't remember anymore. <laughs> You've blocked them out. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I have a I have a lot of, I don't know if it's, I blocked it out, but what I found, so I found writing to be very challenging. I wrote a whole essay about this and the title of the essay was Writing is Hard. Yeah. And I think that writing is hard for a, a couple of specific reasons. So one idea is that when you when you write a book, what you're trying to do is you have this kind of like multi-dimensional idea in your head. And you're honestly discovering what that multi-dimensional shape is as you're as it takes form. As it takes form. <laughs> and then your job is to somehow maybe not perfectly replicate it, but somehow translate that multi-dimensional object into the reader's mind. Now, the trouble is it's multi-dimensional, but you have to choose a one-dimensional path through it yeah. because it's each letter, you know, follows the next letter. And, and so that's the first challenge. The second challenge I found personally with writing was that, especially with this book, I spent a lot of time investigating language. And so there's, you said I loved origin stories. I really love etymology, the origin of words. I find an, an enormous amount of not only meaning, but wonder and understanding where words come from. Mm -hmm. And the, the big idea is that you're trying to find the right word that kind of triggers the right web uh, network association of concepts. And so each word in the English Without language- knowing what that network looks like in somebody else's head necessarily, that's right. right? Yeah. And so what I found, especially there was kind of maybe a two month period, maybe even shorter, six week period where I was very intense in the writing and working through a couple of the hardest chapters to write for me. And I found myself spending a lot of time thinking about language and it was almost as if my ability to process higher level abstraction was slowly unraveling as I spent more and more time understanding kind of the roots of concepts and getting a more fundamental understanding of language. And here's the personal challenge. While this is happening, I'm becoming socially more and more and more isolated. 
yes. So you're kind of well because li- you have to be heads down working is one thing, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so like, I had a lot of three a.m., four a.m. kind of like sometimes going up to sunrise kind of evenings. Like, when did you work? Well, I worked a lot in the middle of the night because yeah. there's this. I don't know. There's just like. There's a special time. I reach. Is I re- that when you hit your flow state? Do you think? Or? Yeah. So flow state for me, I don't think I could hit it in the afternoon if I had a gun to my head. I, I hit it when so I wake up. So it's good that we're recording this in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I. I. If if it's a good day, I can crank out two different periods. One early in the morning, and then I'll go maybe till till like 1 p.m. or something, yeah. and then after dinner. And so the most creative time is is then at what point did you recognize that that was the case and how did you or did you plan around that so i've known this for years this is this is something i was able to lean into from my own practice as a data storyteller is that this is just how i like to operate yeah Yeah. there's this idea and um i don't know if you've seen the the newest black mirror interactive which is called it's titled bandersnatch and it's a choose your own adventure movie no i haven't seen that one and um there's a point in the movie where uh, one of the creators refers to being in the hole, and uh, it's sort of not necessarily a creative block. I don't think I ever hit like creative block, but it's this idea of being in the hole, wrestling with your own mind, mm-hmm. and trying to really trying to figure it out. And there was definitely a lot of that throughout this process. And you know, in researching, there's certain ways to get around it. So in researching, I would like refrag my books. So, you know, I have physical books yeah. and physical books are very useful for many, many reasons. But one of them is that you, like, you can reorder them. So like literally on a shelf, you're rearranging yeah. books. Yeah. <laughs> so rearranging books, recategorizing, <laughs> looking through things. And it, it's similar to like going on a run. It's kind of like it's a semi mindless activity yeah, yeah. and it lets your your mind kind of be triggered by your associ- you know associations with different different texts. And how would you, so, okay, so you're doing one of these, uh, you know, relatively mindless activities. You're rearranging books on a shelf or Mm -hmm. you're running. And when a thought hits you, what do you do with it then? Do you have something that you're capturing it on or? I I try just similar to drawing. I try to keep as little in my working memory as possible. What what I I learned really quickly is that I, I can't depend on my memory. And I think one of the problems is that because when you write a book, you're cognitively going through like this vast landscape of thoughts but um physically as a as a as a person with a meat vehicle you're in the same space every day and it looks the same and so you don't have any experiences any physical experiences to pin those thoughts to Mm -hmm. and so what results is that you have all these memories and they're just like floating around in this soup um okay so what did i do there's a there's a method an index card method that authors use where the index card is this this beautiful tool because index card is like the perfect size to write down a single thought and what you can do is you have a thought, you write it down on an index card, and then you have a stack of index cards somewhere. And that stack, similar to the books, can be reordered. And if if your book is developed far enough, what you can do is you can start actually tagging index cards. Like, oh, this goes in this chapter, or this goes with this topic, or this goes on this page. And what you find writing the book is that the switching costs mm-hmm. from 
whether the activity is doing layout, whether it's editing, writing, illustrating, the switching costs for just to fix one thing is too high. And so what you have to do is you have to build up cues yeah. of and, and, and bundle your activity. And so I use index cards very, very aggressively. Interesting. So this is so curious to me because I, I'm a big fan of sticky notes. Um, mm. I'll probably take a picture of this to post, but my uh, plan for this podcast here is a random assortment of sticky notes uh, that I have spread out in front of me now. I like sticky notes because you can arrange them yes. and you, then they stick. So you stick them. But key to that is knowing how you're going to want to arrange them because th they stick to each other if you try to pile them up, right? Whereas your index cards, you can actually shuffle around and change the order without committing to it because they're not sticking to anything. Uh, just interesting in the way that you could use them. Yeah, uh, index cards are also very transportable, yeah. which is nice. The other, th the other th thing, which is sort of a parallel use case for index cards is that I, I, I write them all my books and I hope you write all over Info We Trust. Um, as, as, as you adventure through it. But I, uh, when I read a book, I'll be writing in the margins and underlining. You didn't leave us any margins to write ah. in, Patrick. <laughs> but then I'll also use a big index card as a bookmark. Mm -hmm. And then, because what I find is, you know, just like an inf a book is information and like that's one input. The other input is your, your own experience as a person. And then those two things intersect. And what you're going to do is you're going to have creative ideas and thoughts that aren't directly related to the book, but that you still want to capture. And so I would write those on the bookmark because those well, thoughts don't somewhere. belong to the book. Yep. They belong somewhere else. And then, so then you have like a stack of bookmark cards mm -hmm. that just have these random thoughts and ideas. And so when I'm thinking about things like data is water, like I honestly don't remember the moment like that came to me, but it was probably like while reading, you know, something else and like, oh yeah, data is like water. Write it on an index card, and now you've got it for that reshuffling right. and figuring out how it yeah. fits in later. And, and I, I love that. Fairly disciplined. I have slight memories of losing ideas, mm -hmm. um, and you you have a couple of those experiences, and you get pretty good about writing everything down. Yes, yeah. I think too often we rely on our minds for that, and think that our minds are perfect tools for that. When really, it's better outsourced onto paper. Any surprises that come to mind as you were writing or about the process? Hmm. In, in some sense, it was, it was, it was all a surprise. You know, I have a couple of degrees in engineering, which is, you know, in some sense, one of the, the, the farthest. Okay. So here's a better response. What I learned, I learned how to write very much so in while writing this book. And what I mean by that is that I was surprised what a book required from the author in terms of writing style from how I was trained through my technical writing classes as an engineer. And, um, and did that help or hinder the process of book writing when it came to your style, do you think, your engineering training? Uh, it, it was maybe a fine foundation, but it really, technical writing, um, and even the writing I learned in high school, had nothing to do with the type of narrative flow you try to create in the mind of a reader. And the book that helped me understand this best was Steven Pinker's A Sense of Style, and the reason I like that book is because he breaks down what to me previously was a very fuzzy topic and idea in a very mechanical way. And he explained that the big idea is you're trying to, when, so what is narrative? Narrative is this thing happened and then that thing happened and then this other thing happened after that. And Ira Glass has this phenomenal video on YouTube. Ira Glass on storytelling, it's like from like 2007 or something. It's like an old video, but it's, it's great. And he explains how to make great radio. And how do you create this narrative train in the mind of the reader when you write? It's like each sentence has like something from before and then a new idea. I mean, generally that's how sentences work. 
And it's like, well, the new idea, put that at the end of the sentence. And, and then it's like old idea, new idea, old idea, mm-hmm. new idea. And then you, you, you build that way. And then this, other, I mean, he has a lot of great, just very simple, practical things that are so obvious once you see it. It's like, but your paragraph should be kind of in the same way. And then like, he has this example of an essay about, I think it's a heron. It's like the heron is what the essay is about. Okay, well, if the subject of the essay, the topical subject is the heron, then the grammatical subject should also be a heron. Like the heron does this, the heron does that. And so he has just like these very practical suggestions and and that really, really helped me. And at what point did you, did you pause at some point after starting to write and go back and read these books or at what point in the process did they enter? So I, being a good engineer, I tried to become an overnight expert in writing Mm -hmm. when I first got the book contract. And I read, I spent a week writing books by famous authors on how to write. And so these books sort of gave me a good kickoff, gave me some interesting things to talk about. The most impactful one from that period was Stephen King's book on writing, which is um, part memoir, part how-to. And I recommend that. And that helped me most in terms of constructing my daily routine, because he went into a lot of detail about the different routines he's had across his career, mostly pre and post alcoholism Mm. and kind of what's changed. And uh, the most important thing from that was the idea of word count goals, how you have to have word count goals and you have to hit them and you write until you hit your goal. And like, irrespective of whether it's good or crap, right? Yeah, exactly. And so King's book was very important in terms of kind of like the meta, but then Pinker's book was very important in terms of kind of the word to word, sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph, tactic. Mm -hmm. And I came to Pinker's book a little bit later when honestly, I was a little unsatisfied with my writing and I I wanted to start polishing it. And that's when that came in. Yeah. I'm always interested in other people's routines because you talk to, you know, five different people who've written a book and the five different things look different. But I think one of the points that you make in the book is just the the creatives, the thing they have in common is not their routine, but that they have a routine, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, fosters this sort of creativity. Is there anything else from the book that you want to share with us? Is this the right time to do another live read? Yeah, Yeah. let's do it. Okay, so this is a long paragraph from the introduction. It's about data and story. There's a superficial contradiction between the archetypal images of data and story. Data evokes cinematic binary code falling down a computer screen. Story kindles memories of wisdom shared around the campfire. Story is easily understood as entertaining anecdotes. The word evokes predictable narrative arcs, the kind used in serial fiction to attract and hold attention. The same cliched story is the sugar that makes lessons palatable. At its worst, the word puts objective rationalists on alert. We know story can be used to manipulate emotions and deceive. This conception of story is not incorrect, but it is incomplete. Story has a lot more to teach us about conveying information than mere conflict, climax, and resolution. We call narrative discourse story, but it is really only an input to the real story playing inside our heads. Our experience of time and our ability to identify what matters are two extraordinary aspects of our lived experience. On a timescale too short for us to discern, we perceive the world in sequence and infuse it with significance. Story is how we make sense of these stimuli to ourselves. We perceive the world and the order moments that our senses detect and we assign meaning as we go. A coherent personal reality emerges and we act in relation to this inner monologue. 
Story is our believed truth. Without this reality-generating story, we would drown in the chaos of sensory overload. Beautiful. So I think this is a good point to circle back to your seventh grade science fair. So I have three small children. So one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about is how do we build a, a space or how do we foster for the next generation to become good data storytellers? So is there advice that you would give to, to parents or the things that you think we can be doing to create good environments for children? I can only speak to what I remember as being impactful because I don't have children myself. But one thing that I remember being really wonderful is having lots of books and magazines in empty rooms. And the idea that the problem with screens, and I'm, I'm a huge nut for technology, so don't get me wrong, but the problem with screens is that I think especially to a child is that you kind of have to know what you're looking for in order to go get it. Like screens aren't very accessible in, in one sense versus walking into a room and having hundreds of books in that room. And we honestly live in kind of a golden age of book accessibility. And one of the most incredible things growing up was that I lived in a very small village, 1800 people but on my street, and I walked to it almost every day, was a one-room library. And that one-room library didn't have a lot of books, but what it did have was a computer. And the librarian knew me and recommended books to me and ordered books to me, and it could be there in two or three days and arrive. And so we live in a golden age of accessibility to books because so many libraries are loading their books to use book wholesalers. And so with the United States Postal Service, you can pay $3.99 and buy a book for a penny from Amazon used books and have a book at your door within a couple weeks for $4. And that doesn't mean like go out and assemble a thousand book library. But as a child, I remember a lot of time just pulling books off the shelf, leafing through them and books not on data. I don't think I ever read a book on data. Books about all aspects of of humanity and a lot of these books were very visual you know mostly photographs but also paintings and some infographics you know a lot of dk kind of infographic mm. books zoo books i think having broad exposure to everything that's going on what the world is like how big the world is but really how rich the world is how rich human experience can be that i see as a very fundamental sort of just empty time yeah. for me to go and spend time on my own discovering everything. Well, and that seems like useful advice, not just for children or for parents, but for everybody, right? For us to not forget to step away from screens and, and read and absorb. Any final thoughts to share with our listeners today? There is a, a pair that we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the watch which is the idea of information and informing and how they're not the same. I, I absolutely adore information. I'm no happier than when I'm creating maps and charts and diagrams, but even I have to remind myself is that information isn't, isn't the last stop of the trolley. Like what's actually important is when that information hits the mind of a real person 
and when it informs them somehow. And I have to remind myself that because I get lost in making the information. And so I hope that going forward, we can all help each other adopt a perspective of a focus on the informing. That's great. RJ, it has been a pleasure. Very excited to be sitting here with you, sharing your lessons and wisdom to everybody listening today. RJ Andrews, author of Info We Trust, How to Inspire the World with Data. Thanks for listening.